Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. Today's guest is Rosa Prince, editor of Politico's London Playbook. Now, if you don't know what that is, what are you doing with your life? I'll put a link in the blurb to where you can sign up to it. It's a morning email. There's now one in the afternoon. Now, I know if you already subscribe to morning emails, often they're the ones that they clog up your inbox and you don't read them. And then it just becomes an admin nightmare, deleting and unsubscribing for them. Politico's London Playbook is exceptional. It is phenomenally well-written, brilliantly presented, and highly addictive. Someone put me onto it a few years ago, and if you're not subscribed to it now, you're probably thinking the same thing. I don't need another morning email in my life. It's just so good. And I was already uh, a fan of Rosa's work before she got on board two years ago. I subscribed to it for a few years. It's been excellent. But Rosa also wrote Comrade Corbyn, a biography of Jeremy Corbyn. She also wrote a biography of Theresa May. She's had tons of jobs, including at the Telegraph and at the Mirror, and it's someone just completely immersed in political reporting. So I thought it was a good time to get her on because the morning email phenomenon, obviously, in a way, it's a I say a new genre. It's relatively new, and it's just such a phenomenal way to educate the public. And it's really interesting, and we get into this quite early about who is what audience does Rosa or someone like Rosa have in mind when they're writing it. And knowing that it's uh, what the target audience is, it's really interesting because obviously when you're reading it, um, there is something that feels, you know, you feel, it feels very inside of you in a very, very good way. You feel genuinely like you're getting a top level briefing. So we talk about all that, including the brilliant books that she's written, the difference between print and online and, and just the whole morning email genre and, and what it is. But you have to subscribe to it. Um, so I, the link is there. I, you know, if you already do, you know what I'm talking about. If not, um, you, you've been missing out, but it's never too late. Um, just to let you know who my uh, forthcoming live guests are. I'm not sure I've announced all these. Um, so Monday, the 17th of April, the next show, Jess Phillips. Always sensational, always unmissable. And I mean, given everything that's happening in politics at the moment, will be phenomenal. On the 22nd of May... David Blunkett. Now, both of those, what's really interesting, obviously, Labour are getting far punchier in their uh, public relations and, and their adverts and the attack ads on Rishi Sunak recently. And they will be two really interesting perspectives, obviously, from uh, a current member of the Shadow Cabinet, Jess Phillips, but also David Blunkett, who was known as a tough home secretary and, and Labour trying to reclaim that tough on crime mantle will be fascinating. On Monday the 5th of June, um, my guest is Philip Hammond, a very rare appearance uh, from the former Chancellor. Obviously, Chancellor under Theresa May uh, served in the cabinets of David Cameron and, and Theresa May and just one of the grown-ups uh, in modern politics and just his take on what's happened to the Tory party in the country in the last few years will be unmissable. On Monday the 19th of June, Margaret Beckett absolutely cannot wait for that. Uh, obviously, um, Labour has never elected a female leader, but Margaret uh, was the first to lead the party in the interim between um, John Smith's sad death and Tony Blair taking over. And of course, she stood in that leadership contest. And I mean, <laughs> the, the breadth of her experience and career cannot be underestimated. She spans numerous eras of British politics and... That will be a very special evening. That is a very, very rare opportunity to see Dame Margaret Beckett. Um, so I cannot wait for that. And on Monday, the 3rd of July, uh, my guest is a friend of the show, Joe Lysett, uh, who uh, is, uh, of course, a phenomenal comedian, um, but also effectively a political activist and political commentator and one that um, obviously... <laughs> 
occasionally gets himself into a bit of trouble. So he is a phenomenal comedian. He's well into his politics. That will be a very, very special evening. Uh, guests for July onwards to be announced. But 17th of April, Jess Phillips. 22nd of May, David Blunkett. 5th of June, Philip Hammond. 19th of June, Margaret Beckett. 3rd of July, Joe Lysett. And I will see you at all of those. Um, now, let's talk to Rosa Prince, editor of the Politico Playbook Morning Ebell and a phenomenal career before that. Rosa, let's start, if that's okay, by talking about Politico and the morning email because Playbook is by far the best of any of the subscription emails there is out there. And there's something about the way that it's structured and written that... I don't know what. Do you have any insights to what the magic ingredients are that make it the best? That's a really good question, and it, it's a, a funny product. When I I've only been doing it for two months now, and when I started to tell people about this uh, exciting new job I had, who didn't work in politics, that I, I quickly kind of confused them all because it was quite hard to explain it. Um, yeah, it seemed to hit a sweet spot. Um, as you know, uh, we have a couple of uh, sister publications. It started in Washington, D.C., and there's also a Brussels playbook. And so when it was launching here, um, Kate Day and Bla Jack Blanchard, who who launched it, sort of asked around and said to people, you know, do you think there's room for another one? Because as you say, there, there were already a couple of uh, newsletters. And they Kate has a story, which is that she spoke to the 50 most important people in Westminster, the 50 people that she felt she needed to be reading playbook for it to work and 49 of them said no we don't need another newsletter <laughs> but she managed to persuade them that they should give it a try and it, it did it hit that sweet spot it's um the the idea behind it is that you tell people in Westminster or, or people who are interested in Westminster but but above all that kind of bubble the people that matter in Westminster what's happening that morning and and that seems to to work. It seems to um, have fulfilled the purpose. And and very quickly, it, it sort of took over and ate up all the all the other newsletters. It's just phenomenal, and and it's great to know that that's the emphasis because I read it effectively as an outsider, someone who is interested in politics and who worked in it, but is now not employed in the world of politics, but is, is fascinated by it. And it feels like it's written as a top level briefing. It feels like it's written for effectively, the people who run the country. And there's something quite exciting as someone who doesn't run the country to feel like you're, in a way, brought to the inside by that. So when you're writing it, it is the brief of it to write it for the decision makers. Yeah, Jack said to me once, um, OK, what I want you to imagine is it's 7.03am and James Forsyth is getting ready to go to work and he's got one baby on his hip and Allegra's making the coffee and they've both got their phones out and they're scanning through Playbook to see what they need to know in the morning. And that's now what I think of when I'm when I'm there at three or four in the morning crashing this thing out. I, that's exactly what I try to do. I try to provide a service. and But it's not just something that's um, very kind of list-based, you know. If it was just, right, these are the BBC headlines today... I think that would be quite boring and people would switch off. And it's a long product, you know, it can go to four or 5,000 words. So to sustain someone through reading all that and get all the information they need, you need to have light and shade. So we don't just give them the, the news they need, they also get the gossip. You know, it's it's the idea is what Westminster's talking about. If that's, you know, some really important development in energy policy, then great. But if that's, oh my gosh, this cabinet minister was in the pub with that, uh, Labour MP, then that's even better. Um, so it, we see those kind of funny, quirky, gossipy stories as just as integral as the big news stories. You know what's mad? I, I've never once read it thinking that I've read 5,000 words. <laughs> you just sort of can so easily scroll through it on your phone. It, it's digested in a way that it feels very quick. Yeah, and, and that's the idea. I think, as I say, if it was if it was dry, if it was just, you know, this is what's in Parliament tomorrow and, and this is what all the newspapers have said overnight, then you wouldn't be able to read it. But yeah, if you're if you're lilting through and that's why there's a very deliberate policy to have quite a lot of jokes in there and to be a bit edgy and a bit snarky, 
um, to to manage to carry you through at what is, you know, it's an unholy hour in the morning. It comes out at seven o'clock in the morning. And to be able to consume a big chunk of words at that time of the morning, you're going to need to have some fun with it. I love the structure of it. I love the, my favourite bit actually is, but, 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 but. <laughs> because I think that's such a good way of, it's almost like a mate is telling you this. It's like you've got a mate on the inside. So are there things that you, do you have to include that, for instance? Could you have come up with your own or do they say, look, that works, so keep that in? No, no one's ever said you have to have but, 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 but. But um, sometimes, because you write, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, I think we're going to talk about this. It's sort of a breakneck thing when you're sitting there trying to crash it out and, and it's long and you're reaching for these jokes and puns to keep everyone occupied. That's one of the ones that just sort of comes naturally because it is, you know, on the one hand, but on the other hand, and then but, but, but automatically comes in. We do have a few that tend to be there, like there's always driving the day. There's always London calling at the bottom, which is the sort of more kind of parish news and cultural stuff. Um, there's always um, today in Westminster. There's always a beyond the 25, M25, which is news from away from Westminster. Um, but beyond that, uh, there's not a great deal of prescription. We we do have quite a bit of leeway to to write how we want to do it. And obviously, we're all getting it at about seven in the morning. When do you write it? So that's the big secret, because before I uh, got the job, I just assumed that the writers got up early in the morning to do it, which now I think about it is crazy because you'd basically have to have gone up the night before. So what happens is that um, we stay awake uh, through the night and then send it off sort of 3, 4, 5 a.m. And then it goes to our top editor in Australia who checks it for typos and mistakes and grammar and style and all that stuff. And then if something does happen, you know, at 6.30, if there's a huge, I don't know, huge story breaking, she's on hand to sort of fill those bits in. And she's always also really great at jumping on things like um, Office of National Statistics um, will publish at 7 a.m. So she can she can get on top of those at the last minute too. So she's a, 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 one of our secret weapons. Because it would be easy. Um, obviously, it's a very, very high quality product, but it's a morning email. You know, it, it, there's something about that because it's not tangible, because it's not print. People might assume that actually, oh, this is quite an easy thing to produce. You know, it's just Rosa gets up, writes a quick email, we'll read it. But actually, this is this is like producing effectively a magazine every day. Yeah, that's right. And um, it's interesting, I was just listening to your conversation with Harry Cole of The Sun from a few weeks back, and you had a discussion about whether newspapers still matter. And I think I had thought that perhaps I, I, I was in newspapers for a long time, but I think I thought that maybe they were on the decline. And here I was going to work for this shiny new internet publication. But actually, what the last couple of months have taught me is how much newspapers still drive the day. Um, I think some of our other uh, products, so in, in DC, I think they do get up early in the morning and do it. But um, for us, it's still so important to have read every single newspaper. And that that's a, a time-consuming <laughs> business. Um, so no, it, it's certainly not something you can kind of dash out in an hour. It's, it's a labour of love every night and a, a lot of work and craft goes into it. Well, that's one of the great things about it is is the the variety of sources in there, the breadth of sources that you draw on, and you always seem to have the most interesting information in there. And it is that mixture of pertinent information with a slightly gossipy edge, and um, in a way, it's like the week, but with kind of more personality and verve. That it's kind of got a, a sass to it. That I guess, do you know what? I've never really read the American one, so I don't know if the American one has that, and then that sort of brand runs through whether that's something that uh, Politico London has done for itself I think that um, as a sort of global entity we feel that probably the London one is the, the snarkiest of them all um, just because I think the audience likes that I think Brits like that um, so it, it seems to yeah work well for us I, I think it is different from the week um, which if your listeners don't know it's like a a, a magazine that comes uh, comes out and kind of produces excerpts of of newspaper articles and industry magazine articles what Politico tries to do is not just reproduce what's been in the papers but kind of take it one step on so it shouldn't just be this is what happened last night it should be and therefore this is what's going to happen this morning so you know it'll be um I don't know the, the times had this to, to report so we spoke to this person who responded and it's going to be really fascinating to see how this third person thinks what they think about that so that's the aim for it to be very much 
forward looking and throwing forward and agenda setting rather than just kind of looking back and reproducing what's happened the night before. You've worked for a variety of publications. As you say, you worked in print for, for the Daily Mirror and for the Telegraph. You worked at the House magazine. How does working for Politico compare to those gigs? Really different. <laughs> really? So different. I'm, I'm, oddly, yeah. do you know what I thought you were going to say? Oh, it's kind of all the same. You know, you're what? How is it so different? Um. Well, so the rhythm of my week is really different, and partly that's because we we did take a decision um, when I came on board that playbook wouldn't be single authored anymore. So now I write it two days a week and I've got two deputies who write it the rest of the time. Um, so my, my week is very kind of top heavy. And then the rest of the week I do a bit of editing, I meet sources and contacts. Um, so I'm having to kind of adjust to those changes. Whereas on a daily newspaper, you know, you wake up every morning and it's a new day and you try and get that new story. Um, and it's just um, another thing that's completely different is it's really easy to make contacts which is always the hardest thing to do as a journalist but with playbook everyone wants to know you everyone wants to talk to you you're kind of turning people away so that's really been nice and refreshing and I think it's just a bit more lonely you know I I remember it being quite collegiate on the newspapers and not that I mean we have a great team I really I've only been there a couple of months as I say but I've um, really found um, my team to be lovely but it's much more solitary because you're just there when you're actually writing playbook itself, you're just there in the middle of the night and it's it's just you. Whereas, uh, you know, I used to bounce ideas off uh, my fellow journalists all day long in the Telegraph and the Mirror office. So, and, and again at the house. So that's quite different. So this thing of, you know, everyone wanting to know you and, and is that because Politico is seen as neutral and, and, and safe? But is it also that they're all reading it and they want to be in it? You know, there is that almost society element to to the London playbook about who was at a party or who was chatting to who. And I guess people want to feel like they're in the in crowd. Absolutely. It's it's very much both. So it, it, everyone wants to be in it because it's the place to be. And it, part of the reason it's the place to be is because it's a it is a trusted source. We have long discussions, actually, about that impartiality. And it's a hard thing to do because... As we discussed, you want to be fun and snarky and gossipy. And to be able to achieve that without being offensive is, I think, the kind of golden um, ticket. Because if you just every morning offended loads of people, then no one would read it anymore. But also if it was if it was boring and flat and not edgy and fun, then also people wouldn't read it. So, yeah, the idea is to um, to 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 try and make it engaging and therefore somewhere where people want to be seen. Yes, yeah, CNBC seen. It's kind of like, you know, it fulfills all these different functions. And one of them is the the old court circular where people would, you know, I've been reading the Chips Channon diaries, which I'm sort of obsessed with. And, and he was, by the end, he, he couldn't write his diaries anymore, but he was still in the court circular. And obviously that was still really important to people. So now we don't have the court circular to the same effect, but we've got London Calling, which tells you who's been at what party. Absolutely. And I, I love, even when it's people I'm not, really that aware of there's something you know you you do feel as an outsider that you're being given a peek into the not the private lives but certainly the social lives of um of the great the good so that's obviously part of it um I, i do you have any data do you know where most of your subscribers are are they mostly in london or is there any way to know um, I'm sure we do have that data. Um, I don't have it to hand. I, I we we do have a fair chunk of um, overseas readers, which is really interesting. So people from um, I, I happen to know people from sort of, you know, if you're a, a head of a big global business, or if you're um, perhaps even a politician from another country, or someone working for another country that interacts with Britain, um, we have a lot of those readers. Um, we have anyone who's anyone reads it in SW1 and then yeah it's the it's the political obsessives and the pe- people who might kind of come across maybe they don't come across politicians every single day of their life or civil servants every day of their life or government departments but but they do enough that they they want to know more and um, it's kind of a you know one of its many functions is it's also a bit of a cheat sheet so if you want to look smart to your boss and know what's around that morning you don't have to read every paper anymore you can just pick up playbook and, and you're done I, I think it's sponsored most days now I, I, I can't remember exactly whether there's always a sponsor but the one thing I do like about it, it, it the sponsorship is always fairly light touch it's not you know you expect a bit of a paragraph the brand's at the top and then that's basically it um 
just on with the advertising with it, does that would that ever create a conflict of interest or you know if you've got if you've got say um, advertising from say a gambling firm, would you then have to think differently about how you would write up a select committee report or something like that? No, I mean um, actually the way that it's formatted is that the newsletter I write the newsletter and then it goes off and the ads are added by our production team that very late stage so I have no idea what ad is even going to be there which is good I think it's how it should be and I've never had anyone say to me oh we've got this ad from these people therefore you need to think about that it's just not been an issue it's not even been discussed with me the whole time I've been there and I I can't imagine a forum in which it would be it just seems to be that that's something that that appears and that's all good. Uh, we mentioned your previous uh, gigs at the Mirror and the Telegraph. The House magazine was something that I've always been fascinated by. And it, I wanted to get a subscription to it, but I think if you don't work in Parliament, it, it turns out it's very difficult to get a subscription to House magazine. You can. Um, can you? you? Pay like, uh, yeah, you have to pay a couple of hundred quid, I think. But you could, yeah, it's there. You okay, maybe I will. Click oh, on I the just always thought, I, I, but I guess that playbook gives me what the House magazine, you know, <laughs> in a quicker form. But I loved the idea of reading effectively a trade mag for politics, for, specifically yeah. for Westminster. That, that must have been a cool place to work. I really loved the the house. I, I instantly felt very at home there. It's a funny, quirky product, but it's brilliant. And um, it actually has a lot more kind of input and interaction with the MPs and peers than I thought it would. You know, they there's a board and it's certainly not a board that tells you what to write it's a board that comes up with these really interesting and cool ideas from the inside because they they know what they're talking about and they have um fun perspectives on things so yeah it's this little kind of in-house magazine just for it's not even like politicos for kind of politicos whereas the house is literally just for mps and members of the house of lords other people can read it and they're encouraged to but that's very much the target audience so yeah it's a, a it's a fun place to work I enjoyed it very much and totally different polit- from Politico of all the jobs I've done these two are the most different because it was every two weeks so I'd you know have a very busy couple of days <laughs> during production week and the rest of the time sort of sit around thinking of fun people to commission and fun ideas to write about and I wasn't writing very much myself at all whereas I've gone completely the other way now. And what is it about the kind of insidery element of, of Westminster reporting that attracts you? Because you, you did the book about MPs standing down, as well as biographies of, of Corbyn and May, the House magazine, the Politico stuff. It, it, would it be fair to say that you have a love of the, not just of political reporting, but, but specifically the sort of the bubble stuff? Yeah, I think I'm very much a creature of the bubble. You know, it's funny, um, a few years ago, maybe about 10 years ago, um, I was sort of thinking about whether I'd, I'd gone off and I'd been writing books and thinking about um, whether to come back to Westminster. And the trend then was very much, we need to get outside of Westminster and we need to find out what people on the street. And if you were applying for a job, you had to have loads of ideas about how you do, you know, do all your reporting from Rotherham or Edinburgh or wherever it would be. And my heart used to think, because I used to think, well, I want to write about Westminster. <laughs> I want to write about what goes on here. And I I think that's kind of gone full circle and people again thinking, you know what, this is this is a really cool place. This is the centre of power and we should be unapologetic about that and we should focus on that. And I think part of that was maybe, maybe it was about Brexit. Maybe people were so sort of surprised by what have happened and, and felt that politics had become disconnected from the people. And I think that's a laudable aim to 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 cover that and to think about that and people should be thinking about that but I don't think they're mutually incompatible and the bit that I want to be writing about I think is just just what goes on in that fascinating place alongside the Thames because I think that um, it's sort of endlessly fascinating and you can spend a whole career in there and I hope that I will have colleagues who will do the bits from Rotherham and Edinburgh and wherever as well. And, and what is it that draws you to that? Did you grow up watching Prime Minister's Questions? Yeah, I definitely was a, a geek. So I, um, I'm i from London. So I went to school, um, Pimlico School, just down the road. And I remember the day that Margaret Thatcher resigned. I ran up Victoria Street and queued up to try and see her. And I didn't get in because the queue was too long. But um, but yeah, I I, um, I I did politics A-level and just that was it. I was, I, in fact, I hadn't wanted to do politics A-level. I thought I wanted to be an actress because I was, you know, 16 and stupid. And I went along and realised that I was, absolutely terrible at acting 
And the only other A-level that fit with the timetable was politics. So I did it. And that was it. I've been hooked ever since. <laughs> and were you, did you ever think you'd stand for election, that you'd go into it? Was, was that ever a dream? No, I, I mean, I was, I, I'm sort of as I go along, I'm much, I was quite a political person when I was younger. But as I go along, I become less and less um, certain about, topics and feel that I don't really personally have the answers you know um it's much easier to to carp from the sidelines which isn't very constructive is it but I'm you know I, I'm don't think I'm maybe I just don't not that I think politicians are arrogant but I, I just don't think that I know best or that I've got the right to stand up and say that th- this is wrong and this is right I think most issues are so nuanced that I feel a bit shy about saying that I know I have all the answers and this is how this is how everyone should live their lives. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not definitely I'm interested in politics, but I'd never wanted to be a politician myself. Although I have been asked to I, I sort of take this as a badge of honour that I've been asked to work for all the three main political parties. I think that's <laughs> probably doing something right if I'm preserving neutrality that way. I think you absolutely are. I mean, I'm <laughs> interested as to when you'd been asked, but particularly by Labour. Was it before you wrote the Corbyn biography or after? Before. Because <laughs> that's a great book. That that really is the first um, biography of Corbyn. Uh, obviously, others did. Tom Bower did one after, and uh, there were various ones done by allies of his that were you know, done to sort of celebrate him. But yours was really the first that was just a biography of Jeremy Corbyn. Given your history of politics and your, um, you know, your your love slash cynicism of elements of it, what was your view of Corbyn when, you, when he first arrived as Labour leader? So um, my idea when I started to write that book was that it would be a biography of, of Andy Burnham, who, if you remember back in the day, was going to win the Labour leadership contest. So I actually had a deal to write Andy Burnham's biography and I thought well I'll make some notes on Yvette Cooper as well because it might be her and then you know you remember as well as I do that extraordinary summer where suddenly he came from nowhere and and he got on the ballot and then he uh, became the Labour leader so uh, there, I've got still got this email somewhere where I say to the publisher maybe I should start making some notes on Jeremy Corbyn um I, d- I didn't know him at all um even though I'd been in the lobby for quite a long time there um I sort of thought you know he he was in this group um he wasn't really part of mainstream politics or even the main even the labor party you know labor had been in government for all those years but he hadn't been a factor he'd been a kind of you know person on the side and maybe colleagues who work for the guardian might have his number in their book but i i even from my mirror days i didn't um but i just thought i'd give him a you know a fair hearing i wanted to hear what he had to say i was totally open to it um he he didn't like me because I worked for the Telegraph and he was one of those people who thinks that if you are work for the Telegraph, then you're right wing and you won't give me a fair hearing. So from the get go, we didn't really hit it off. But um, I, I, as I do with everything, I really strive to be even handed and neutral. And I I, I think the book is that, um, you know, he might disagree, but I, I did my best. To make oh, no, it's, no, it's absolutely, it's absolutely even handed. No, no question about that. Um, it's interesting the sort of relationship with him, I guess. Then, so if you're doing a biography of someone, I, I guess even if it's unauthorized, you get in touch with them. You tell them that you're doing a biography of them, and I don't know. Some subjects might give you stuff off the record. Did he give you anything? Was he helpful at all? No, he was the opposite. He was quite. He he said, if you don't approach any of my friends and family, I'll give you on the record sit down interviews, and then he just didn't say. <laughs> It did never materialise. Um, so he and he did tell people not to speak to me, but but lots of people did. Lots of his friends and family did. So it was fine. Um, later on, when I I wrote a book for Theresa May, and that was a different experience. So she had al- already become prime minister by then. So she was. I, I again, it was a very. I had been thinking about doing one about her. I thought she'd probably run to try and succeed Cameron, but I thought it would be in a couple of years' time. So I already had. I've made you know three notes <laughs> if that so we had to bring that forward very quickly but by then she was prime minister so she didn't really have time to do sit down interviews but I, I I don't think she really gave much of a steer either way but I certainly didn't get any hostility from her or from the people around her I knew some of the people around her and and they didn't sort of 
try and put me off or or say that I shouldn't speak to anybody. I mean, there wasn't there wasn't that much dirt to be honest to be had no. on Theresa May, <laughs> so there wasn't probably many skeletons that she was trying to keep hidden. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, I'm just thinking about when you're you're investigating Corbyn because he is really as far as any major party goes in the last even more unusual than Boris Johnson in terms of a person who's ended up leading it one of the two major parties what was your view of his of his life and and how he'd effectively spent his time and how he'd ended up where he was yeah some one of the people I interviewed who knew him very well said that he kind of somewhere along the line you know when he was quite young he developed this persona where he would be a very left-wing campaigner and it was always all about campaigning and he kind of never never changed so um from when he was an 18 year old um doing uh, year voluntary service overseas in Jamaica to then he came back and went to the University of North London and did trade union studies for a, a year or so and then he was a Labour sort of local activist and then an MP and then all the way up and he's Labour leader he had the same approach to to life and he did the same things, which was just day in, day out, kind of knocking on doors and 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 trying to persuade people that his was the right view without really listening to anyone else's views. And he, he didn't, he wasn't a great thinker, I don't think. He just had this sort of received set of policies and he wasn't going to be budged for them. And it was like a blunt instrument. He was going to keep going and hope the world came around to his way of thinking. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. And did, do, when you're researching someone in such depth, do you, you know, same for Theresa May, do you develop a fondness for them almost by default or, or is it according to the subject? I think I felt detached enough that I didn't feel any kind of relationship with them. And, but I didn't have any hostility either. I, with both of them, you get very immersed. And it's just this fascinating secret to try and unwrap, you know, the, um, mix my metaphors. But there are so many different layers to it, like an onion. You know, you just want to go down and down and down and speak to the next person, the next person. I, I think a challenge always with a biography is where do you stop and how many people do you interview? And I kind of had these... Um, deadlines because both times they had become leader unexpectedly and very suddenly yes. so we were trying to get a book out to fulfill that desire really for people who didn't know who you know who's this person who's suddenly become Labour leader or who's this person who's suddenly become Prime Minister so we were keen to we rushed both of them out and that gave me quite a tight timetable and I think that for me that was probably quite helpful because I can see how you know there are biographies where it's volume after volume after volume and I totally understand why, because you become obsessed with this person and you just want to read that one more paper or go to or this last trip or speak to the one more person. I can I can definitely see how you could spend many years of your life covering just one individual. And what's your view on some of his character traits? I, I, I was just fascinated by this. sort of he presents himself as a man of peace and talks in that very genteel, almost sort of pious church way about peace and, and things, and then would hang around with... I mean, some of the most despicable hate preachers on the planet. See, like that cognitive dissonance. I mean, was it just that he was effectively he was in on it, and he and he sort of knew, or does he? How do you explain that? Either, is it a blind spot? Is he trolling us? I don't. I, I can't make my own mind up about what's going on there. I think he just divides the world into two groups: those who are with him and those who are against him. I think. I think Corbyn's view is a very black and white one. So, for him, you know take what's happening take takes you know some very anti-semitic people he's hung out with um on the kind of you know from palestine i think what he thinks is that what israel's doing is really bad 
the Palestinians are the oppressed and therefore anything that they says goes, you know, no matter if they if it turns out to be some really heinous bigot who's saying really horrible anti-Semitic things about Jews generally, not just Israeli policy. Um, yeah, and he was like that again with, with Ireland, you know, he would see it as the Catholics are oppressed, therefore there's nothing that the IRA or Sinn Féin can do that he would criticise. And in terms of his own radicalism, is it to is it unfair to him to say, look, this guy actually had quite a nice upbringing, goes to a private prep school, he has this bucolic, um, semi-rural upbringing, and it's just as it is sometimes with a lot of people who end up on the hard left, in effect a rebellion against that. Yeah, I think so. It wasn't a rebellion against his family, funnily enough. They were sort of the only lefties in the village. They were kind of lame party people. Um, they had gone on you know, marches against Spanish about the Spanish Civil War, that kind of thing. Um, and I just think that they they liked talking and they maybe almost outdid each other. You know, they would sort of you know he had he was one of four youngest of four brothers, and each one see, apart from Piers he was slightly out of turn. But I think each one was kind of progressively more radical. And I think they'd you know just well if you can go on a march with CND, then I can, I don't know, uh, you know, I can protest against Vietnam even harder, you know. So I think it was a, a bit of that. And they just just define themselves by we're going to be lefties without really thinking that deeply about it PR, past a certain point in their lives. And did you speak to Piers for the book? Didn't speak to Piers. I spoke to his older brother. Um, he's got two older brothers. One one's not alive anymore. Um, David, who um, was just the, the guy who worked at BOE Systems and, and lives a sort of normal middle class life, uh, seemed like a really nice guy. <laughs> Didn't speak to Piers. No, because he. I mean, there's a book to be written about him, and um, yeah. what he's, I'm, I'm not sure how big the audience is for it, but I would absolutely <laughs> read it. Yeah. So the the Burnham biography, then. I mean, how far did you get with that? How much research had you done on him? No, I'd done a month or so's work on him. Um, it was during the because it was during the leadership election, so I was kind of like just trying to keep up with the twists and turns. But um, don't Matt, don't ask me for his backstory because I've now I'm blanking on it. I can't remember anything about his backstory now. But somewhere I've got the notes that I could dig out. Should he, you know, explode back into our political scene and become the next Labour leader? I'm poised. But there is a good, you know, one thing I really like about bite-back publishing is, and, and again, it's kind of what the House magazine does and, and to some extent Politico, but that is just a, a almost a publishing house directly saying, if you're a political nerd, we're going to give you biographies on people that basically no one else who's really, you know, there is a Burnham biography to be written anyway about a guy who is, you know, special advisor, government minister, and then, you know, the nearly man of the leadership contest, then becomes the leader of the North. You know, he's still a a national figure with an interesting story. So there is still a book to be written about him, but I just, I mean, obviously part of the problem is whenever you work on these big projects, I imagine you're just, you're so intensely inside it. And then basically once it's finished, that's it. And you move (laughs) on to something else and you can't remember a single thing about it. I moved on to, I moved on to Jeremy. So I can't remember any of Burnham. That's really bad. Um, But, but yeah, bite back's great. And the, the thing that they also do is, Publishing's got this kind of mystique, you know, that it takes five years to bring out a book. And Bite Back just go, no, we'll, we'll hand it hand it in, we'll turn it around and it'll be out next Tuesday, um, which is really nice and refreshing because it means that everything's, you know, nice and up to date. And it's just, I, I like the fact that I, I periodically just go on their website. Are there any just niche stuff that, you know, when you just want a bit more detail on something <laughs> yeah. that you didn't even know you cared about? Um, so would you do a, a, another biography again or... Do you feel like you've you've had your fill? I, I would not. I really enjoyed doing those biographies. I would definitely do another one again. Um, my time isn't much of my own these days with the new job. Maybe when things settle down, um, it's quite hard to you know to identify a subject because it's either really obvious and you've got three people already doing it, um, or they're a bit obscure. And what if they never turn into anything? Yeah, so, well, I guess yeah. Kim and Rishi are the two that people will be currently. Yeah, uh, there, there was on. a Lord. There was a Lord Ashcroft here, wasn't there? Um, which, yeah, came out. Was that? I, I can't yeah. believe that's passed me by. Yeah, yeah, there was. It wasn't very. Again, he's like Theresa May. I don't think he has many skeletons in the cupboard. But I should read it. I mean, there'll be something in there for someone like me to read. I think maybe because the Call Me Dave uh, Ashcroft and Oakshot one was just like. 
<laughs> not the best. I was just maybe then I was just like, oh. yeah, you felt a bit mucky after that one. So yeah, yeah, it just felt like it, oddly, given how thick it is, it actually felt quite a thin read. You're like, it, it doesn't really feel like this. <laughs> it didn't feel like the usual kind of biography fair, but I guess that's the uh, that's always going to be. You know, there'll always be a few of those knocking around. One of the other books uh, you wrote was Standing Down, uh, Interviews with the Retiring MPs uh, from the 2017 election. And various people in there, Douglas Carswell, Alan Johnson, many others, uh, big and small. Was there anything that, that linked the MPs that were standing down in terms of the lessons they learned or, or how politics had changed? Um, I actually wrote two books of Standing Down interviews, uh, 2017 and 20, whatever it was, 15? Yeah. Um what linked them um no I mean some had been in there for decades and some had been in there for um just one term and were standing down for all different reasons um do you know I, I I would struggle to identify one thing that linked them all I think they all had really different experiences of parliament kind of more much broader than you would think you know you would think well they've stood for election they've gone there they've served their time and out they've gone the other end um, but I, I definitely found that each each one had it it wasn't it wasn't boring to sort of put them alongside each other. It was fascinating because they all had their own story to tell and they were kind of as individual as, as they were individual. So no, I don't think there was a, a kind of line that I could draw through them. They were all all fascinating. And the, but it wasn't that they felt, oh, you know, politics is coarsening and it's not for me anymore. It was more that they all had individual reasons and they were disparate. So, Yes, some some felt like that, and lots of them didn't feel like that. I think they all felt um, maybe this would be the linking thing that it was you know a, a good and important thing to do. They weren't cynical about politics; they did think it was um, worthwhile. I mean, it, it it wasn't that long ago the twenty seventeen one, but even then they didn't get as much kind of abuse on social media. They weren't targeted and it wasn't that they'd been through the expenses scandal, which they all found bruising. But I think it's probably deteriorated as a, as an experience since then, actually Um, MPs I speak to now quite often unhappy about it or feel that, feel that their colleagues are unhappy about it and they're going through a rough time. Whereas then I think those, the ones I spoke to, maybe it was just the nature of the people I, spoke to and that they wanted to do the interview but they were looking back quite proudly and felt that they'd made a difference I think. That's interesting that now though it's more of a a thing amongst elected politicians that a thing that they are regularly kind of reflecting on is the coarseness of it all. Yeah I mean they really hate the the discourse a lot of them even though they sort of take part in it. Um, They find it um, that they're quite targeted. Uh, People I speak to um, feel that the 29 intake in particular have had a problem um they came in and obviously almost straight away we were in lockdown so they didn't have that initial experience of entering parliament and getting to know its little ways and um you'll see you know a lot of them haven't haven't settled in that well there's also some discussion i mean some people say that perhaps the selection process wasn't as rigorous as it might have been and that the people who came to parliament perhaps weren't as suited as those in bygone days I mean some of them perhaps didn't expect to you know those red wall Tories who some of them are standing down after just 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 one term perhaps didn't expect to come in found that it wasn't the kind of glamorous job that they they thought it would be um so yeah it, it does definitely feel that it's not a super happy place at the moment whereas I felt from those MPs who'd been there before that they they largely enjoyed it that's interesting actually the 2019 election because certainly the overlap of Corbyn's Labour and the result of 2019 and, and the selection process of the Tory party, probably the, there'll always be bad candidates. There'll always be people that are capable or are corrupt or whatever, but they did feel in a way that on both sides, they'd let in candidates that were, I mean, if you think of the amount of Corbyn supporting Labour politicians who ended up in court on, on various things. Um, uh, and, you know, some of the SNP ones, you, uh, it, it felt as if, Certainly, in the last few years, parties' selection processes were were becoming well. They were obviously targeted. You know, they were, they were overrepresenting people from one side of of the party, and and they were picking kind of perhaps more populist. Certainly, when you think of some of those red wall Tory MPs, the, the way that they talk in Parliament, the way that they behave, you think this is 
bordering on actually quite aggressive behaviour. Yeah, I mean, look, it can only be a good thing if the people who are coming in are more diverse. And, you know, Parliament was very pale, male and stale, obviously, um, for way too long. And it's still got a long way to go. I, I think the processes were definitely, um, you know, if you're charitable, they were rushed. And if you're uncharitable, yeah, a load of people got in who were there because they were sort of siding with one particular ideology or another. And it's just a fact that they're not as good an intake if you look at how many have been arrested or lost the whip or got into all sorts of trouble. You know, that that can't be right. There must have been something that's that's gone wrong. Um, I've been speaking to to some people involved in um, the selection process who are a bit worried now that good calibre people aren't coming forward that maybe since expenses maybe more recently with social media that a lot of really bright people who do have a public service ethic and are interested in politics don't want to do it because they kind of don't want to put themselves through that and that therefore the people who do go for it are sort of egomaniacs I mean that's not very fair because I don't think all MPs are you know I'm not one of those people that thinks that all MPs are evil but I, th- I think it it is a problem if our brightest and best are, don't want to be politicians anymore. Um, pay might have something to do with it. You know, you do hear people saying that it's not an attractive uh, remuneration anymore. Nobody wants to put up MPs' pay, so that's really hard to achieve. Um, but, all, you know, you don't want it to just be people who can do it as a plaything, like Rishi Sunak. You know, you want people who come from all sorts of backgrounds and, and different jobs, as long as they're really smart and really care and are really going to be really on top of their brief. I mean, if the Prime Minister or the parliamentary authorities said to you, look, Rosa, you're someone who, who loves Parliament, you've covered it for years, how do we improve the calibre of our MPs? How do we make politics better? What would you say? See, this is one of those questions where I don't know the answer, so I'm going to criticise the people who do. Um, what would I... Uh, I, I think there probably is more of a role for... I've spoken to um, Meg Hillier on the, of the Labour Party about this quite a lot because she was on the board of the House. And she is very much in favour of more training and more mentoring. I mean, you know, that was some of the um, standing down MPs I spoke to who'd come in in like the 70s and 80s. You just used to turn up and kind of wander around the building. And that was that. You bet if you were lucky, a whip after about three months would say, oh, why don't you have an office over there? But they just didn't do anything for them. And that is gradually training, but changing rather. But I think there's a long way to go. So I think that might be helpful if, if people had... No, like the civil service do a bit of a transition for the opposition as you get nearer to election. Uh, I think maybe the parties should have a, a bit of training to sort of help people to to turn up because I definitely think that those 20 M- 2019 MPs found it hard to adjust. I mean, the pandemic didn't help, but it, it's just it's just a, a funny place to get your head around. Uh, you worked at Dodds before you went to uh, Politico, and that's like a parliamentary monitoring service it does all sorts of various things um political intelligence gathering and things like that i mean when i worked in politics i was always fascinated by um dodds what was the other one like de havilland i think was one like parliamentary monitoring services and things or like political intel so like dodds feels like it has actually quite a broad remit what exactly is it that it does so Dodds actually owned the house. So I didn't really work. I mean, I worked for Dodds because it was the parent company, but I only worked on the journalism side. So um, and the house has actually now been sold on. So it's not in Dodds anymore. And Dodds is actually more focused on this political intelligence. So I didn't have that much to do with that side of it, although sometimes I do kind of events and things. Um, I think it, it was it, I'll get this wrong, but from my view, what I felt it was it's something that um Say you're a company that is interested in, perhaps you're in the health sector, then you can hire Dodds or a service like theirs um, to kind of keep you up to date with what's going on in health policy and health legislation, and they'll provide you with that information. It's sort of a valuable tool. And just to come back to Politico then, because there's, there's the morning play, but there's now an afternoon version as well. Is that because... Just so much happens during a day now uh, and, and fitting it all into one email is, is not possible. Is it because people are saying one isn't enough? I, I want more of this. And it's like a reaction to public demand. Yeah, a, a bit of both, I think. Um, it, it was such a success that I think we thought, 
um, the DC uh, version has a uh, an afternoon edition, why not give it a try? And I have found it a really great thing personally. So um, one of my roles is that I edit it a couple of days a week. So Emilio writes it and I edit it. Um, and I, I really like it. He's sort of probably the snarkiest of all of us. But um, it what it does is provide a really helpful jumping off point, actually, for the AM edition. So we now have a kind of cutoff point. So it comes out at five o'clock and therefore anything that happens before five o'clock will be in PM and anything that happens after five o'clock will be in the AM edition. And if you, like I say, if you think about how just the sheer quantity of words that are in the AM edition, if you were trying to do a whole 24 hour cycle, I think it would get really begin to get quite bogged down. So this is, we find it quite liberating that we've now got another product that we can work with. And uh, it's just a, kind of catch up what you missed if you're in a meeting or you're on your way home and you want to see what was going on in Westminster today that's what it's for but it's also got those fun little things like the thing I mean I absolutely love the bit at the bottom where it tells you what's for lunch in the in the parliament's canteens <laughs> I read that every day even though even if I'm going to work from home that day yeah I mean I I don't work in a parliament I, I love knowing what's <laughs> um, for lunch in the parliamentary canteen so well I've, there's this one canteen in Portcullis House where I've got a theory that they've never cooked the same meal twice and I think that that's probably not a good thing because it just becomes more and more eclectic and strange and you just think why can't it just be shepherd's pie today because it'll be you know leek ramelade with feather on top and chocolate Sounds, <laughs> great. Sounds really good. Every, every day it's something wildly different. <laughs> so then when you're editing um, someone else's work uh, for something like this, is that a fairly straightforward process? Is there a back, bit back and forth? Will they say, actually, I, I think that should stay in or I, I can back this up? Uh, so the way that PM um, comes out is it's really tight. So Emilia will send it to me at four o'clock and I have to get it out by five o'clock. So I've only got an hour. So there can't be too much back and forth because of that. Um, but yeah, if there's something in there that I think doesn't make sense or is, you know, super offensive or it's just I I, I can take it out. Um, it doesn't happen very often, if at all, because usually we're all on board and we kind of know what the tone is. Um, so most of it is just reading it to make sure everything's spelt right. Everything's kind of framed right. Um yeah, it, it, there's no little errors that have crept in. But yeah, no, there's definitely a sort of sense check also at the back of your mind that says, is this really what we want to be going in on? Um, we talked earlier about politicians wanting to see their name in there and, and you know, uh, the, the benefits of that. Is the opposite also true? Do, do people get in touch and say, well, why have you written about that in, in Playbook? That's not fair. I didn't say that or do that. Yeah, um, I'm not going to say who it is, but we got a, a special advisor a couple of weeks ago who said, I'm going to I'm banning you for seven days. I'm not going to speak to Politico because I'm so annoyed by what you've written in today's playbook. And the special advisor, after about three days, when it became apparent that we do really need to work together, went, OK, you're off the naughty step, but don't do it again. <laughs> and, and did they have a point? Um. I don't think so. I mean, I think the idea is if we are rude about people, we probably should be equal opportunities rude and be rude to everyone. But personally, um, I don't think you should be offensive or take it too far. I wouldn't want someone to be upset. But if it's a kind of joshing and a jibe and we're kind of handing out to everyone, then I think that's fine. And did you get a sense that it was their master who was upset and they were passing that on or were they just upset anyway on their behalf i don't know that's a really good question i mean you could ask that generally about spads you know are they a creature of their master or are they freelancing probably a bit of both i mean maybe you, you only hire someone who's quite simpatico with your worldview and what's your view of special advisors then on the whole i mean there was a period of time where they were seen as you know the really impressive thrusting individuals then there was a period of time where actually it felt like a, a, a lot of these people aren't very good uh, now, probably a variety of the current crop. Uh, uh, is the country well served by special advisors? You know, years ago, I pitched a book on special advisors to buy it back. And they were kind of like, yeah, sort of interested, but I don't think anyone would buy it. I, I think we missed a, missed a trick because they're yeah. fascinating. I mean, look at the thick of it. Look at, you know, there are various shows. Um, I think they're a, a really interesting creature. I mean, they've got this thing where they're usually quite young, 
Uh, it might even be their first job out of university. They're super smart. They're prepared to give up of their life in a way that most people aren't. You know, they've probably not yet got a family and they're working crazy hours. And they're doing it all for someone else, which is a bit of a weird thing. And I think that's why they tend to not do it for very long. So um, the ones in situ, you know, some are really good, some are less helpful. Um, for me, what the most important thing about a SPAD is that you pick up the phone, you know, and you have the conversation. You don't need to be brilliant at sort of spinning some particular line, but it is helpful to 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 be in touch and not just sort of disappear or, or try and shape things too much if you're just clear and honest and explain the policy and or the strategy or whatever it is i think that's the most helpful um this bunch like i say they, they seem on hope they seem fine um i think that the number 10 operation seems tighter than i hear it was before um so yeah they're interesting creatures Spurs. i mean the, the thought of it being someone's first job at university actually is terrifying mm. for them and the country you think you should have mm. You should have a bit more experience before you're operating effectively at ministerial level. Yeah, I mean, you maybe have, I don't know, been in a think tank for a year or so. Um, there are there are some that, you know, that it's not, there are some now who are coming from the lobby. I feel like there's more of that rotation than there used to be. Um, so there are some who are a bit older, but no, often not. Um, mm. and, and do you think they... It was so culturally affected by Alistair Campbell and the thick of it that there is a sense that they have to be quite macho. Um, some do. Um, there are there are quite a lot of women who are spads, um, and they tend not to be as shouty in my experience. <laughs> but um, you know, this lot is still new, so they're sort of slightly scrambling to keep up. I wonder if over time they'll become a bit less tolerant um or, or a bit less um yeah they'll get a, it it does I think it does go to their heads generally quite quickly you know because it's an awful lot of power you know you're you can be effectively speaking on behalf as you say of of a cabinet minister and you've got a whole department at your feet so um and people hanging on your every word so yeah it's quite a corrupting corrosive thing yeah it's a great job title it, the power the access the status it's heady stuff, which is why you mm. sort of feel that a, a bit of experience first would be a good thing to <laughs> people have acclimatised a little bit. Um, now I'm worried I'm maligning them. There are probably loads of people there who've got really interesting backstories that I'm totally brushing over. <laughs> no question, no doubt at all. There'll be some very, very gifted people, uh, no doubt, serving our country uh, in those roles. <laughs> is it something you'd ever fancy doing? No, I mean, even less than I'm going to be a politician in the span. Um, it, no, I mean, I, I like I say, I feel like you've got one and only life and to be spending it kind of running around after someone else is a bit odd. Um, and they all, if you ask them that, they all sort of say it. They say, yeah, it's a bit strange and I'll do it for a year or two. Um, and, and they've got different reasons for wanting to do it. I mean, some of them want to be a politician themselves and it's an interesting start to it. Some of them have the, the thing that I do, which is like you, you like to be at the centre of power and know what's going on. And some of them are going to cash in their chips and make lots of money working for some lobbying firm or another. And do you think the, the culture of special advisors has, has changed a lot? Or, or, or does, do the hours that it requires mean that effectively the, the job hasn't changed and the sorts of people it attracts haven't changed? Um, it doesn't. It seems like it's pretty much been the same since New Labour, which is kind of, I got in, into politics around about the tail end of that. And I, I definitely sort of see the same people, you know, they're, they're, they're like I say, they're young and they're very bright and... Um, they are prepared to make a lot of sacrifices and to work really, really hard for quite a kind of narrow focused vision. And sometimes it can go wrong and they sort of go off on a, you know, on a power trip. And I don't know, the Dominic Cummings and the Lee Keynes and the Damien McBride. I mean, I know all three of them and in, and in private, they're lovely, lovely human beings. Um, but I think all three of them would say that at times it went to their heads a bit. If you talk about life and, and, and balance and, and what life is for and you only get one go at it, so what what do you want out of life? Oh, my gosh. You're very philosophical now. I know. I don't think I've ever asked anyone else. <laughs> you mentioned it a couple of times. I just sort of felt like you'd have a, um, a good answer. Oh, I don't know. Um, I, 
what is the meaning of life? Wow. <laughs> I I think that, well, okay, here you go. I think that because you've only got one life, you should spend it doing something that you find really interesting. You know, somebody once said to me, there's five days in a week and only two at the weekend. And I, I took that to heart. You know, I never wanted to be working for the weekend. I always wanted to find as much fun in my job as I as I did as in my, you know, in my playtime. So um yeah, that's what I want. I want to be enjoying my work and my life. There you go. Whether it's playbook or playtime, <laughs> you are you're having yeah. a wonderful time. Yeah. <laughs> Rosa, this has been such a treat. Thank you so much. Well, there you go, Rosa Prince. So I hope I get back on because um, once we'd stopped recording, it, it turned out oh, it's just one of those things where the moment you finish, sometimes people go, I thought you were going to ask me about that. And uh, she spent 10 years in America, which I really should have asked her about. So um, obviously I get guests back on the show. And I think it's always nice that you think, I need to get them back on and, and maybe talk about something uh, specific in, in more detail. But that email... You've got to sign up to it. It's brilliant. And it will just, it just keeps you updated. And it is, she touched on it throughout the interview, but it, it, there is that, it's got a, it just gets the tone right. Uh, and as a result, it's highly readable. And then before you know it, uh, you know everything that's going on in, uh, in in uh, in British politics. So sign up to the email um, and come to the next show, Monday the 17th of April with Jess Phillips. And then David Blunkett, Philip Hammond, Margaret Beckett, Joe Lysett. I hope you had a good Easter. Um, and eight loads of chocolate, and I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. Bye.